I know it has sermon audio. I, I don't know if it does the audio. This is just audio streamed. Oh, okay. If it does, great. Let me know. Yeah, that too. Yep. So no, I just I just pushed go live. So yeah, we are live. So um, okay. So Luke chapter three. So those of you who were here last week, uh, you know we walked through Luke chapter one, chapter two, and we just were inundated with references to the Holy Spirit. After five hundred years of absolute silence, the Holy Spirit comes in almost like a flood at the opening of the book of Luke. We have Luke opening up with this. Uh, promise of John the Baptist is coming. How is this going to happen? What's he going to do? And the angel Gabriel is promising to uh, to Zechariah that this child that your wife will have, remember Elizabeth, barren when she was childbearing years, now she's well beyond that. And Gabriel shows up and goes, you know, Zechariah, your prayer has been answered. Which I simply ask, how long ago do you think he had stopped praying for a child? They're most likely in their 70s or 80s at this point. So we're talking probably decades since he had prayed that prayer, and here that morning it was being answered. He's staying there in the temple, pulling out the priestly duties that had fallen to him. Gabriel shows up, says, you're going to have a son. And we talked all about the parallels of Abraham and Sarah because it's the exact same story. You know, barren when they could have kids, couldn't have kids, and then now they're beyond that age, and now the promise comes that a son is going to be born to them. This is going to be something that's dependent on the promise of God, not on the natural abilities of man. And so what, what follows? He will have the Holy Spirit from the time he is in the womb forward. That's completely different. We've never seen anything like that. John the Baptist had this unique relationship with the Holy Spirit still inside the Old Testament. Now, remember, when we're in the Gospels and we're talking about the Holy Spirit, we are still in the Old Testament, The New Testament, as far as the Holy Spirit is concerned, the way that he interacts with the church, does not happen until Acts chapter 2. So when we're in the the gospel, we're dealing with this switch over time, but the way the Holy Spirit interacts is is like the culmination of the Old Testament, uh, the climax of the whole story. But it hasn't turned yet. Not all the people of God have the Holy Spirit. Not yet. So the Holy Spirit is still dealing with individuals for specific purposes, but it's going to start ramping up pretty severely. We talked about the effect of how this was that, that the Holy Spirit had been utterly silent for 500 years. And the Jewish people were writing about this. Have we done something wrong where God just is simply ignoring us now? I mean, 500 years is no small amount of time. 500 years ago was the early 1500s. So you imagine they were having prophet after prophet after prophet, sometimes multiple prophets at the same time, even when they go into exile, they come back, they build Zerubbabel's temple. It's smaller the glory of the Lord doesn't fill it, and the Holy Spirit stops talking. And so everyone starts wondering what what has become of this. What are we to do? How are we to interact with this? You had a question? I was going to say, when the temple that the Holy Spirit did not go into it was that because there was they were he was displeased. God was displeased with the temple. So that's the question that they wrestled with. And honestly, I'm going to leave it unanswered because I want you to feel kind of that same consternation. They did not know. And so one of the ways they started dealing with that was making things like synagogues so that they could just study what the Holy Spirit had said. And so a lot of their focus began shifting towards why isn't God talking to what did God say in the past? And so the synagogues were there as a way to read the scriptures, to expose themselves to the scriptures so that they could still hear from the Holy Spirit in a time where he's not talking. We, we introduced this last week and say, we are in much the same situation here. 
The Holy Spirit does not speak in the same way that he did in the Old Testament. He is not working in the same way that he did in the Gospels. Here, we are not waiting for new scripture. We are not waiting for the first advent of Messiah. He's already come. He's not left us. But the Holy Spirit is not to be expected to be dropping on you new revelation. This is one of the misteachings of our time period, where people desperate to hear from the Lord don't go to his word, but instead think that their dreams mean things again. Whereas Hebrews 1 says that was how God used to speak. Today, he has given us his son. The gospel once delivered to all the saints, as Jude says. All of this comes to a head because um, Luke is trying to expose us to this reality that for 500 years there was absolute silence and now a flurry of activity for the Holy Spirit. And it should drive us to understand that something regarding life is occurring. Something outside of the norm, something that's not natural, something that we couldn't bring about. So I will partially answer your question. Did God fill Solomon's temple because they built it so well? No. Then God's resistance to fill Zerubbabel's temple was not also owed just to their failure to build something magnificent. This is part of how God was doing. And one of the main plans that God had was to make them hunger to hear from him again so that when the word came, they would recognize him. Yes, ma'am. Do you think when Jesus comes back, the Holy Spirit will be everywhere again? That's a good question. We don't really actually know about this. All we know is that at the end of the book of Revelation, it's not only the church that desires the return of Christ, it is the Spirit himself. It's actually where the scriptures end with the teaching of the Holy Spirit. We're going to talk a lot about that when we come to Revelation. Um, it's, it's, it's a matter of running up against something we're not entirely clear on. Um, so I don't have a full answer on that, and neither does Scripture for us. Um, the eternal state is something that is far more complex and wonderful than we can imagine. How we will interact with the Holy Spirit um, is, is entirely something else. The temple itself will change. Right now in the, in the world, what's the temple of the Lord? We are. All Christians throughout the world, right? What will the temple be in the eternal state? If you're familiar with the book of Revelation, there's two different statements about this. One, there will be no need of a temple because there's no need of separation. And God himself will be the temple. In other words, we will live in such close communion with the Lord that there is not a temple. The glory of the Lord fills the entirety of the earth and we behold his face. There's no veil. There's no separation. There's no holy of holies that's separate from a holy place, that's separate from the world and separate from the courts. It's everything is holy of holies. The, the entirety expands to all of creation. Uh, and that, that's, that's a transition that um, is talked about in such allegorical language that we don't really know practically what that looks like, although we have a lot of descriptions and they're all about burgeoning life everywhere, fruit trees, rivers of life, you know, coming out of the throne of God, you know, how much of that physical, how much of that spiritual? And honestly, is there much of a distinction between physical and spiritual in that world? I really don't know. Sir? Yes? No, you uh, kind of the point. I was going to just talk about how, like, the Holy of Holies with the engravings and the temple and the tabernacle, it all was just a depiction of the Garden of Eden. Correct. A place set aside for God to dwell with man. Right. And the whole new heavens and new earth would right. be the garden of Eden. This lush paradise. This, 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 is, this is going to come up in the sermon this morning because Jesus is light of the world. 
um, is a callback to the menorah inside the temple. When you walked inside the temple, you could only see by the light of a single thing, and it was a candlestick that was shaped like the tree of life that had seven candles on it. It was the only source of light in the whole place. And from that, you could see fruit trees that were decorating the sides of the panels, the bread that was sitting on the table, and the, the veil to the Holy of Holies in the back that was completely shrouded in darkness. All you had was this one little tree, this golden lampstand, by the way, if you read the book of Revelation, that should make a little bit more sense, with these little candles that are lighting this way. And when Jesus is saying, I am the light of the world, it means a whole lot more than I think people uh, address. We're going to address that today because, because it's one of those things that uh, the priests, the, the uh, scribes, the Pharisees, everyone would have understand what he's uh, explaining. Without me, you have no access to God. You have no access to life. You have no access to eternity. Though you desire it because eternity is written in your heart, without me, you will not maintain it or bring it. We got a lot of questions here. We haven't even gotten to Luke 3. Much of the imagery is giving to us because there is stuff that we're familiar with. We're familiar with trees. We're familiar with right. light. But what it actually not, It's like that. It's not it. Correct. Correct. And, and that's, why I say, that's why I say the distinction between the physical and spiritual in the ultimate sense is kind of the breakdown between the realistic and the analogous. Is it an analogy? Is it reality? Where does the line actually break? And to be perfectly honest, I'm not, I'm not overly surprised if, if eternity has really no line of demarcation between spiritual and physical realities, that there's just such an overlapping mixing that we see with Christ, for instance, in his glorified body. He can eat fish. That's a very physical thing. He can pass through doors. That's not a physical thing, at least as far as we know. You don't just like vibrate your atoms through another solid substance. It doesn't work like that, as far as we know. So how much of this is a spiritual thing? How much of this is a physical thing? I think the lines are very, very blurred in the eternal state. Um, so let's get back to Luke, because uh, I would love to sit here and work on those things, but um, we've, got, we've got a job to do. So as, as John the Baptist is promised that he would have the Holy Spirit from, uh, from in the womb forward, means that uh, also the promise that comes to Mary. We talked about this extremes. you got a woman who is barren, that's well past childbearing years, and then you have a virgin. Naturally, these two women should never be pregnant. That doesn't happen. Those, those are extremes, and God specifically chooses this and makes this great statement in the middle of this, nothing will be impossible for the Lord. He doesn't use normal means on purpose, which is why, again, when we come to Christ, here's part of the application here, when we come to Christ, it's not usually our strengths that God uses, it's our weaknesses. Because in our weaknesses, that's where God's glory shows rather than ours. And that's where we learn humility. The promise is made to Zechariah. The promise is made to Mary. Mary travels to Elizabeth. She's the only one that would understand this supernatural thing that has occurred. Uh, it is her relative. When she enters in, what did we run into? What happens with John the Baptist, who's about seven months gestation while Jesus is about one month? Leaps. Leaps. Is that a normal thing for a baby in the womb to recognize another baby in the womb for someone who's not even showing yet? None of this is natural. Now wouldn't even know they're pregnant yet. Correct. Right. The only people who know that Mary's pregnant is Mary, Joseph, and Elizabeth, and Zachariah. 
and apparently John the Baptist, who's not even been named or born yet. Which means, again, when we're talking about what the Holy Spirit is doing, these are not natural things. These are way past natural. This is, this is not even to just, it was able to give John the Baptist good knowledge so that he responded well. No. How many of you remember being in utero? And developing your skills of recognition of things on the outside world? None of us. Nobody has that. We're not to that level of cognition yet. But here we have the Holy Spirit filling him, as it says explicitly, from the time in the womb forward. Which means something that John the Baptist is going to do in his life is going to bend the world towards life. That's what the Holy Spirit is all about. is focusing and refocusing and, and clarifying the world towards life. Ever since the very beginning of the scriptures. Well, this happens with Jesus as well. When he is born... He is taken to the temple, and the the rites of purification for Mary had come, and Jesus is a few weeks old at this point, and all of a sudden, my favorite character in the Bible shows up, Simeon. He's there in the temple, and he had been told explicitly, verbally, from the Holy Spirit, that he wouldn't die until he saw the Lord's salvation, the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit to the temple, whatever that means, Simeon had a very unique relationship with the Holy Spirit with regards to these things. Again, Old Testament covenant is still at work here. So the Holy Spirit is working in unusual ways. Um, And he was able to recognize a random baby in a crowd as the Christ, something that nobody else recognized until Peter finally recognized him as the Christ nearly 30 years later. Um, That's a remarkable thing and something that... Even his brothers, even Jesus' brothers uh, denied. So all of these to say, then we lurch forward about 30 years. Uh, well, we, 12 years to Jesus in the temple, you know, being about his father's business, which is uh, awesome stuff, but isn't really dealing with the Holy Spirit there. We find ourselves in Luke chapter 3, and Luke again reorients us and says this is the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor in Judea. And this the great thing about Luke, he is a magnificent historian. Um, He always gives you all the guideposts about where you are and what's happening and what's going on. Again, we talked about the first two chapters of Luke uh, almost entirely being built off of his interviews with Mary, um, which is a really awesome thing, why you get such a perspective about this, why the opening of Luke is so unique. Um, uh, Luke expresses that he did all of these things. He wrote this entire book by interviewing people. Uh, about what had happened. And so when you're reading Luke chapters 1 and 2, realize you're reading Mary's perspective of things as Luke talked to her. Um, She would be the only one still living by the time he's writing this in the early 60s. Um, Keep that in mind. As we lurch forward 30 years, now we have a whole other discussion here. Uh, John the Baptist is baptizing and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, as verse 3 says, uh, and then he is expressing that he is the one in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, uh, words that should be very familiar to all of us. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill shall be made low. The crooked shall be made straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Make the path straight. Make it so that it's not difficult to see, it's not hard, it's not impossible, it's not to the right or to the left, it's not diverging, it's a straight path, clear. What is the straight path that sees God at the end of it? It can't be with sin. Repentance. 
This is, this is where John the Baptist, again, his entire ministry is built off of the purposes of the Holy Spirit to make the path for Christ straight in front of him so that people are able to anticipate what's going on. Right away, we see the resistance uh, of the crowds that came out, especially the, the Pharisees and the rulers at the time. Verse 7, he said, therefore, to the crowd that came out to be baptized by him, you know, this is really just, this is how you grow a church. You brood of vipers, who warns you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Do not say to yourself, we have Abraham as our father. Again, what were they focused on? Natural solutions to supernatural problems. I tell you, God is able to, from these stones, raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Again, the threat of death exists while the promise of life is preached. Both of those two things are going to be part of how uh, the Holy Spirit goes forward. The crowds asked him, what shall we do? He answered and says, whoever has two tunics is to share one with the one who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors came also to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he says, collect no more than you're authorized to do. Soldiers asked him, what shall we do? Do not extort money from anyone or make threats or false accusations and be content with your wages. Now, is that the gospel? No. That's the fruit of repentance. The gospel is found in salvation from such sins. The deliverance of these things in our habits comes after the fact. And so what he's saying is, do not tell me you have repentance while you are continuing to extort people and mistreat people. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. You want to know what real repentance is? It's turning to God, not yourself. Right? With all of this, John the Baptist makes very, very clear that he is not the one on whom their hopes should rest. And he's not the end of this way. He's not the way, he's not the path, he's not the goal of the path. He's just the one that makes it straight and makes it clear. And so here's where his clarity starts. Verse 15, as the people were in expectation and all were questioning their hearts concerning John, maybe he's the Christ. John answered them and saying, look, and I'm going to paraphrase a little bit here, I'm just using water. This is just natural stuff. It's depicting something that's going to come. There is one who is mightier than I that's coming, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. Now, in their culture, that is the stuff for slaves, and not even slaves that are Jews. You have to use your foreign slaves to take shoes off and wash feet in the household. By the way, that should show you when Jesus is washing his disciples' feet how severe that is of a picture. The strap of whose sandal I'm not worthy to untie. As John the Baptist is saying, you have your, your eyes set and saying, wow, John the Baptist is so great. I, I bet he's the Christ. And John says, look, I'm not even worthy to be a foreign slave to the one who's coming after me. You got to understand, you have your eyes set this high. It's far beyond anything you can imagine. He says, you want to know what it is? I'm just using water. He's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Now, what in the world does that mean? If he had just said he was going to come and baptize you with the Holy Spirit, part of that makes sense. Okay, great. That's interesting. We should anticipate this. Why fire? That is a good question, isn't it? Yes, ma'am. Hmm, interesting. What would hell do to us? Ah, fantastic. What would it do to those without the Holy Spirit? There you go. The same thing that fire does, both a purifying and a destructive force, is the same thing the Holy Spirit does. 
a purifying and a destructive force. Jesus does the same thing too. The same man, Jesus, who's pronouncing blessings on those who are pure in heart, blessings on those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, out of the same mouth express woe to those who mistreat others, woe to those scribes and Pharisees who, in preaching the way they preach, make their hearers twice the sons of hell than they are. This is not a discrepancy. It's saying that the message itself and the focus on life itself necessitates the reality and threat of death. Both. Fire has both of those things. You cannot purify gold without fire, and fire will consume everything. It's, it's kind of one of these great pictures that expresses that on the road to life and what the Holy Spirit is doing, he is not just going to come and give a thumbs up and validation to everything you're doing and everything that's going on. Purification is a very difficult task. Now, do I say we pass through hell like that? No, no, no. That would be a more of a Roman Catholic concept of what purgatory is. To, purgatory just means to purge away uh, all the dross and purify us. Uh, that's not taught in Scripture. And so I don't think it's anyone's right to um, add to that. Um, every time we add to Scripture, we always get proven to be the fools. So we, we, will, we will sit with what Scripture says, which is that the Holy Spirit actually purifies us here and then through death. This is the way I put it uh, to help me think about it um, is when we go to our grave, the wrath of God keeps my sin in the grave and raises my body to life eternal. This mortal then puts on immortality. This fallible puts on infallibility. There's, there's a transition that happens to that. But the same thing happens also in the sufferings of our lives. The sufferings in our lives lead to virtue, don't they? Are the sufferings eternal or are all the virtues eternal? What will actually last through the grave? What is purifying us? It's not the sufferings. It's actually the virtue that God works through them. Right? James expresses that there's actually no way in the Christian life to gain patience without trials and sufferings. None. That's how God does it. Difficulties leads to growth. Most Christians want times of ease to lead to growth, but that's not what happens. That's not how it works. Uh, our faith is sharpened. Our faith is clarified in times of great difficulty. And all of this is to be said to this, to this reality that what John is expressing is, look, yes, I have the Holy Spirit. Yes, I am guiding you towards life, but I'm not the life itself. I'm not the one who's going to do this. I am not even worthy to touch his feet, this one that's coming. I just am using natural means to depict supernatural realities. I'm just baptizing with water. And here we see some of the difficulties of understanding uh, the story of salvation in an old covenant time period. And that's why I say when you're dealing with the Holy Spirit and you're in the Gospels, for all practical purposes, you're in the Old Testament. Because the pictures are still natural pictures. Even Jesus in his ministry is still Old Testament style stuff. He's, he's giving sight to the blind. He's giving hearing to the deaf. He's giving uh, ability to walk to the lame. These are natural pictures of supernatural realities. All of us are born blind to the gospel. God must give us eyes to see, ears to hear what the word says. These things are supernatural realities, but Jesus is still depicting them in, in physical ways. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Yes, 
purifying, and yes, destructive. Which means, again, how many times throughout the Old Testament have we seen the Holy Spirit doing both of these things? In order to bring life, he destroys. We saw this thoroughly through the book of Judges. Right? I mean, we just pick one up at random. Samson. Right? He goes out, and in order to deliver everyone, he takes a jawbone of a donkey and slays a thousand men. And then writes a poem about how there's heaps of corpses, and then he's like dancing around it. Right? The Holy Spirit was specifically doing that through Samson. It says it explicitly. You say, well, the Holy Spirit should be about life. Yes, the pursuit of life in a fallen world also includes death. It does. Which is why, by the way, universal salvation is not a teaching of Scripture. There are saved and there are unsaved. There are those who have repented and there are those who have not. There are those who are children of Abraham and there are those who are children of God. Right? And what John the Baptist is saying, look, all you Jews that were standing in front of these, do not put your hopes on the fact that Abraham is your father. God, you want to know how severe God's creation is? He says, look at these rocks. He could make children of Abraham out of those. This is just the natural realm. This is not where salvation fully takes place. And for that purifying this, look at verse 17 that follows. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. The picture is that of harvest time. Bring all the wheat into the threshing floors and beat it. Just destroy it and then cast it up into the air on a windy day and the chaff gets thrown away and the wheat falls back down. Is that a fun process for the wheat? No. Great deal of suffering, great deal of hardship, but the chaff goes away. The chaff being the fallen people of this world and our sins as well. Both of which will be burned with unquenchable fire and thrown away. Notice who's doing it. The one who has just announced the savior of the world. This is how he's going to do it. He's going to save his people from their sins. He's going to end sin in the world. There will be no more sin. You say, well, what, what, what about our habits? I mean, if we're, if we're going to live in the eternal state, I can't even conceptualize of living without sin. I hope you have that amount of humility in your Christian life to realize that you don't even know what it is to live without sin. Right. It's completely different. We will be without sin nature. Our fellowship with one another will be on a level that you and I do not know. Right? If you've been married for any amount of time, you know each other's sins. You are the, sometimes the target of each other's sins. And still it is a close relationship. But imagine, imagine if you will, the closest relationship that you could possibly stretch your mind to with every Christian with no sin. Those relationships are so far outside of our sphere of reference that we just do not grasp it. And what Jesus is saying here is, the reality is not a single piece of chaff is left. But here, while we are on the threshing floor, which is what this world is being depicted as, while we are on the threshing floor, great sufferings, and sometimes it looks like from the hand of God, are shrouded mercies that we do not understand. Why is it we pass through suffering? Why is it we pass through trials and difficulties? We don't have an answer, except that the Lord is purifying us for our life eternal. That's it. 
The Lord of the universe always does what is right. And you say, well, why, why is my purification look different than somebody else's? Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Your God knows you personally and will bring you to that life. Do not fall discontent with the situations in your life. That is a road that is nothing but slavery to discontentment. Why this? Why that? You will never get those answers. Trust in the Lord. He will guide us to life eternal. Each of us rose a different road to that. John the Baptist, with many other exhortations, verse 18, he preached the good news to the people. This is the gospel now, right? The gospel, at this point, as he's standing on the Jordan, the gospel, the good news, we're not yet to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved, you know, death, burial, and resurrection. We're not to that yet. The good news at this point in history is there is one who is coming who will rid the world of sin. Look for him. What? And the time's coming, right? Verse 19. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, and he locked up John in prison. Now, when all the people were baptized, and Luke kind of goes back into the... uh, uh, back into the history of this. And when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened. Now watch this. The only time in all of history that this has happened. The Holy Spirit descended on Jesus in bodily form. That has never happened before. He looked like a dove. And a voice came from heaven and said, You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. Yes, sir. That's what the bodily form looked like. Yeah. So from that point and throughout all of history, when we depict the Holy Spirit in art, it's always a dove. Because it's the only instance where we have something analogous to who the Holy Spirit is. Now, why a dove? Don't say peace. Think of a story with doves in it that might draw your mind to what's going on. You haven't spoken yet. What's up? Ah, that is where your mind should go. Noah. Where are we? Where is Jesus standing when he's being baptized? He's in the water. Yes, ma'am. Yes, part of that would be the picture of that. Yes, yes. But the huge thing that should be sitting on everyone's mind is we've got something here in the water that a dove appears from somewhere else and alights on them. Go back to the story of Noah. What did that mean when the dove returned? There's life out there somewhere. Somewhere in the water there's life. There's there's an olive branch. There's the hope that the world will return back to a state in which life will continue. Now, with Noah, that was a natural thing, right? With Jesus, we're dealing with something entirely, because here again, this isn't just a random dove coming down from the trees. This is the third person of the Trinity incorporating himself into a bird-like form, just to depict this, and it's the only time he's ever done it, to land on Jesus' shoulder, and then... A voice out of heaven calls out and says what? Something that nobody has ever heard said about them in all of history. With you, I am 
well pleased. Very good. What should that call you back to? Creation. Everything is coming to the head. The Holy Spirit has been silent for half a millennia. And then in the span of 30 years, we've gone from promises and children and promises and salvation and looking forward and something's happening, something will happen. And these two are going to accomplish something that we don't really understand. Something about this is unique. And then all of a sudden at his baptism, we have the Holy Spirit descending on him in bodily form like a dove, depicting for us the salvation that happened with Noah and his family in the ark. That somewhere out there, there is life. And then we have on the other side of this, a well-pleased God who looks upon this son of his and says, I'm happy. Creation, judgment, salvation. Yes, sir. Yes, so um, that, that analogy is actually made for the Virgin Mary, where she will be overshadowed by the Holy Spirit. Um, we talked about that last week a little bit. Uh, for uh, how, She asked, how in the world will this be? I'm a virgin. I've never known a man. And, and that reference is, is parallel to uh, the reference of the Holy Spirit uh, uh, hovering or brooding over the face of the deep at creation. That same kind of picture is with regards to the answer of Virgin Mary's question, um, how is this going to happen? Gabriel just says, the Holy Spirit will overshadow you. And out of this dark, incapable, natural chaos will come spiritual life and order. Um, and it won't be in a way that he's not sitting there explaining to her scientifically how this is going to happen. He's just going to go, this is God doing something. And that's just the way of it. Um, because honestly, if he described how in the world that would happen, it would still confuse and it would confuse us to no end. I mean, imagine if we could just grab Jesus's DNA for a second and learn something of it. I'm really glad we don't have access to that. The amount of theories and cults that would arise would be incalculable. Same if we had video evidence of him, by the way, which is why God gave us words. All right. Get off my soapbox. This is the only time in all of history, and John the Baptist baptizing Jesus is the only person in all of history that experienced at one moment all three members of the Trinity with his five senses. He's literally touching the second person of the Trinity, hearing the first person of the Trinity, the Father in heaven, and looking at the third person of the Trinity. Only time in all of history that any person's been able to see that. Now, if, if you ever struggle with doubt, I want John the Baptist to be an encouragement for you. Even after witnessing the entire Trinity for himself in the physical, when he went to prison, he still wondered if Jesus was the Christ or if they should look for another. The distractions of our life do often push us towards doubt, even from things we, un we undoubtedly saw or witnessed or experienced in our Christian life. Um, the encouragement is still, Jesus doesn't go, you know, when John the Baptist is in prison, he doesn't go, well, tell the John the Baptist, of course, I'm the one. No, he says, go tell John what, what you've seen, right? The poor have the gospel preached to them. The blind see, the deaf hear, 
Like these, these abilities, these loss of natural abilities are restored to people and we are depicting the realities of salvation to come. Here, Luke then inserts the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Um, Matthew takes the genealogy of Christ and takes him back to Abraham. Here, we have Jesus' ministry going all the way back to who? Adam. There's a reason for that. Back to creation, because here, the picture is not that Jesus is just saving the Jewish people. That was, that was the main focus of the Gospel of Matthew. That was why Matthew was writing. He was writing to Jewish people about the Jewish Messiah. That's why Matthew is so different like that. Luke is writing to a broad Greek audience. Here we are dealing with the Savior of the world. And so we don't just push his genealogy back to Abraham. We push his genealogy back to Adam. Way past all of this. Not even just Noah. All the way back to the very beginning. Because the real focus is on the reality that Jesus himself is going to be the Savior of the world. And yes, is he also the Savior of Israel? Sure. Is he the Messiah? Yes. Is he the Savior of the world? Yes. Is he a creator? Yep. He's everything. This is one of the greatest things about all of these. Chapter 4, verse 1. I love the way Mark puts this, um, but for just consistency's sake, we're sticking with Luke for the ministry of Jesus. Uh, we're not going to go through all four Gospels like that. It just gets very, very confusing, and that would make this class very, very long, and uh, we're not here for that. So we're going to be doing Luke and then Acts. That's kind of be the uh, way forward, but I do love the way Mark talks about this, that the Spirit drove Jesus into the wilderness. It's, it's, it's almost like this, this goading uh, if you have these sheep and just like hitting them with a stick and making them go forward. It's like just off to the wilderness with you. Verse 1, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan, was led by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and when they were ed- ended, I think one of the greatest understatements, he was hungry. The devil said to him, if you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. Aren't you God? Didn't you just say you could make stones into the children of Abraham? I'm just telling you, make it bread. Not that hard. Would Jesus have been wrong to do this? To answer the temptation, yes. The purpose was to go out and suffer in the wilderness. Now, what should 40 days in the wilderness call your mind back to, if you're familiar with the Old Testament? 40 years in the wilderness. Right? What Israel failed to do, which is to not grumble in the wilderness, Jesus not eating even bread, which the people of Israel wandering in the wilderness were given every single day. He, without bread, did not grumble or sin. Also, we have an analogy to Adam here. Adam, in a garden of plenty, on a full belly, ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Jesus, on an empty belly, in a starving place, did not eat anything. Failure and success, both sides. Jesus answered him, and by the way, if you're confused about it, referring to manna and the 40 years wandering primarily, he quotes from Deuteronomy uh, in the references there of why God said he gave manna in the first place. It's to teach him, and then Jesus quotes it, that man shall not live by bread alone. Devil took him up and showed him the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. Now, was Satan lying? No, he was not. They were his. 
If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered him and said, It is written, You shall worship the Lord God, and him only shall you serve. Regardless of how it looks, the natural solution to all of these, and here even Satan is offering him a supernatural thing. I will give you power and influence over every single nation in the entirety of the world. No longer will my demons uh, infest the world. No longer will we possess people. No longer will we rule governments. I'll give everything to you. Everything. All power, all authority, all glory. The only thing you have to do is take me and put me over you. That's it. Not that hard. Just worship me and this will all be yours. And why does Jesus say no? Because in three years' time, he was going to purchase all the nations of the world with his own blood. That's how Matthew finishes off. All authority has been given to me. Now he can tell us to go into all the nations and preach the gospel. Because this is one of the things that I think in, uh, I think in our circles, we talk so much about the cross of Christ accomplishing salvation from sin. That's true. But it accomplished much more than that. One of them is the victory of Christ over the forces of darkness. He purchased the world, generally speaking, out of the control of Satan and his demons. You say, well, what is, how is that now? Are, are demons still active in the world? Or is Satan still active in the world? There's a certain binding that has happened. Uh, there is a certain um, lesserness of this, which is why we don't see demon possession, anything like it happened during the Gospels. Also why we never saw it in the Old Testament like that either. Um, something changed there in the way of this, and the authority is given to Christ. And so as we go out into the world, what should we expect? But the ability to go out and share the gospel. Will we be uh, resisted for that? Sure. Will we be persecuted? Yep. But they all belong to the Lord now. Um, yes, ma'am. I was going to say, um, when Satan said, you're saying Satan wanted to be over Christ. Yep. But later on, Christ says, I and my Father are one. Yeah. So in other words, he was Correct. Nobody's over Christ. Correct. Right. Not in any hierarchy. And I th- I, you're, you're exactly right. And I thank you for the, the clarity on that because there's a lot of people that think there's a subordinationism in the Trinity where like the Father is in charge of the Son, the Son's in charge of the Spirit, and like that. It's not that. It's three co-equal, co-eternal. Right. 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 Yep. Exactly right. You shall worship the Lord God, and him only shall you serve. And yeah, that's the great thing about Jesus' response, is because it's both a command to Satan, you shall worship the Lord your God, not the other way around. I don't worship you, you are to worship me. And then it's the other way of saying, I'm not going to put anything above me, and I'm not going to worship anything else. And so Satan took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Now here's a fun thing. Satan, quoting those scriptures, is making a tacit acknowledgement of who Jesus is. I know you are the Son of God. I know you could throw yourself off this temple, and all the angels would defend you. They would catch you. Nothing's going to happen to you that is not in your Father's will. And his will is not for you to die today. So jump off. Just just prove it. Show who you are. Show in the natural world who you are. And here's the real fun thing. The pinnacle of the temple is a place where is the most public thing in all of Jerusalem to happen. You want to turn all these people's hearts to trust in you and demonstrate who you are? 
throw yourself off, everyone will see it. Everyone will believe in you. A shortcut to repentance and salvation. What does Jesus do? Nope. That's not how it will work. Here's the thing. If he was trying to just garner a whole bunch of followers, that is exactly what he should have done. He should have just jumped off the temple and all the angels catch him. Everyone would have believed in him. That, that, is, that, is, violation, that is violative of natural order. That is something outside the natural order that is a miracle, and it is what that generation always wanted. Signs and wonders. And Jesus refused to do that. Why? Because then their conviction would be based on what they saw, rather on the words of God. And this is what he says over and over and over again. Even, even when he comes to the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, the rich man goes, you know, boy, just send me back to my brothers. Let me warn them about this place so that, you know, they don't, uh, they don't come here and all these things. And what does Jesus answer? What does the Lord answer back to him? They have Moses and the prophets. If they don't believe them, they won't believe even if someone rises from the dead. Now, that was also a prophecy. When Jesus rose from the dead, the same people disbelieved. The same rulers knew on Easter that he had risen from the dead and told the soldiers to lie. Imagine that. Being so convinced that you are right that when someone rises from the dead, you won't listen to him. Jesus answered Satan at the third temptations and said to his it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, it wasn't just the three and it wasn't just at the end, 40 days of every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And he went about teaching in their synagogues, being glorified by all. The Spirit brought him to the wilderness, and the Spirit brought him out of the wilderness. This type of bookending uh, on, on what we learn about and the way that Luke writes, the way that Luke describes how Jesus goes places, um, actually my doctoral mentor wrote an entire book on this, that Luke actually writes uh, on this reality of how Jesus travels around is a perfect analogy for the Christian life. And it's something that Luke wrote into his gospel, where, like, this is one of the first instances of it. Why is it he is in a place of suffering and wilderness? The Spirit brought him there. How will he get out? The Spirit will bring him out. The same thing happens in the Christian life. Why is it I'm in this difficult and dark place? Because the Lord brought you there. And the Lord will bring you out. This, this, this type of picturing happens all over the place even as jesus travels from town to town luke writes it all in there it's really fascinating i just had to mention it because it deals with the spirit here how is it that the spirit does these things he makes it inevitable it's not like jesus was like you know what i really need to grow a little bit let's go to the wilderness and try some trials no it's the holy spirit had purpose and jesus went with it and then at the end of that jesus returned in the power of the spirit to galilee and he went around teaching in the synagogues, and I love the very first thing he teaches, because it is calling back to what we learned in the book of Isaiah when we were there. Does anyone have any questions before we go forward? Yes, sir. Just an observation. Yep. The best thing Satan was able to do was contend people. Yep. Where, to any anybody else, he was able to possess in demon form mm -hmm. people. But, so mankind was... 
had his disposal, he could have done anything with them, possess right. them, and right. make them go crazy. But Jesus, he was only be able to tempt. Correct. Not any way physically. What do we learn from that uh, about the Holy Spirit? Because there's something quite special with that. That it shelters and protects. Right. So in the church age, when Christians have the Holy Spirit, should we fear demon possession? No. We're taken up by the protection of him who lives forever. Yes, sir. In about five minutes. Yes, sir. Also, in, in, the, in the end of 13, it does say something here. That, uh, uh, the devil departed from, from Satan, but until an opportune time. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So you know that something else is coming. Yeah, the right. You know they're going to meet again. Right. Right. So, you know, that's that just saying, hey, listen, that, you know, there's temptation in between all along the way yep. with us. And, whatnot. and even though we are protected and we are... Uh, have the Holy Spirit within us, but still there's going to be another time where this is going to happen. Again. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and it's going to happen in a different way next time too. He's not going to come and tempt Jesus straight up. Right. He's going to come and tempt all his disciples. And Jesus references it. As soon as he sees that Satan is using one of his disciples for something, he points it out, doesn't he? Yeah. You're going to go up to Jerusalem. You're going to, you know, I'm going to go up to Jerusalem. They're going, I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to be beaten. I'm going to be crucified, dead, and buried. And what is it that Peter says? Forbid it. Just tell it no. You're able to do that. You're able to just turn that off. Make your sufferings not happen. And what does Jesus respond to Peter? Get behind me, Satan. You are not putting your mind on the things that God wants, but on the things that man wants. And then he used another disciple later on, didn't he? When they went up to Jerusalem in the upper room, what have we learned about? Judas Iscariot was filled with, this, with the devil. Yep. There in the upper room. Mm -hmm. And Jesus, right after that happens, looks him square in the eye and says, what you need to do, go do quickly. Yep. That is a remarkably terrifying thing if you think about what was actually going on because Jesus wasn't just talking to Judas Iscariot. This is your time to attempt everything you can. Go try it. Was that a fun thing to go through? No. Horrific. Yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. Do you think um, when Jesus said that the disciples were like questioning what was going on? So uh, there were two people sitting right next to Jesus. One was uh, the Apostle John and one was Judas Iscariot. Um, and he was sitting right next to him. So the, the picture is more like this. While Judas is sitting next to Jesus, the devil entered him, and Jesus looks over at him and says, what you're supposed to do, go do it quick. But, but and leaves. Oh, yeah, there is. They ask, who is going to be? Me? No. Well, he so identifies... So and so Judas Iscariot says, "Is it I, Lord?" And then we have the answer that Jesus says, "Yes, it is." He answers him straight up, "Yep, it's you." And the devil entered him, and he says, "Go do your job quick," and he left. Now, so as far as who heard what, it wouldn't make any sense that everyone else heard that. 
Uh, this was like a quiet side conversation that he was having with him um, after he washed his feet. Amazing stuff, the upper room. Um, when Jesus goes into the synagogue... Yeah, let's do this one. Okay, we have time. He came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. Now, this is the synagogue that he would go into from the time he was two until now. He grew up in the synagogue, so this would be like going to your home church. And uh, this is where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. Man, you know we're dealing with something big. Uh, he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it is written. <laughs> it's just... Yeah. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim the gospel to the poor. Good news. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, the recovering of sight to the blind, and set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he stops mid-sentence and rolls the scroll back up. This is why all the eyes were on him, because you don't... It would be similar to me coming up and saying, well, I'm going to share with you my uh, memory verse for today. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that everyone who believes in him... And then go sit down. It's mid-sentence. He stopped in the middle of it. Because if you're familiar with the passage in Isaiah, the next part is the destruction of the world preaching peace and liberty and all of these things to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, and then it goes into the wrath of the Lord. He stops mid-prophecy, rolls it up, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And everyone in the synagogue is just looking at him, going, that's, one, not how we do it here. And two, you didn't finish the passage. And so Jesus is sitting back down in the synagogue, and he just turns around and he says to them all, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. This prophecy that was laid down 760 years ago is now finished. Because Isaiah wrote it in the year 711 BC so that I could read it and fulfill it today. That's insane if it's not true. Again, we come back to this reality when people are talking about who Jesus is. It is not that he can just be a good teacher. He is claiming that all the scriptures are about him. All of salvation is about him. All of the world was made through him. Quoting something like this from nearly 800 years beforehand and saying, all of that is written about me. If that is written about Jesus, then the entire surrounding context of that means something entirely different because this is dependent on the identity of what's called the servant of the Lord in the book of Isaiah that we've talked about at length. Why would he stop mid-sentence? Why do you think? We proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, all of these things... I'll read you the actual end of that. To proclaim liberty to the captives, this is in Isaiah 61, the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. Which one was he here to proclaim on his first coming? Was he sent into the world to judge and condemn the world, 
or was he sent to save sinners? He was there to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That year will end someday. But as Christ is standing here, says, I am beginning that period of history today. And how's he going to do it? What's the first phrase? In verse 18, what power is going to bring, begin the year of the Lord's favor? The Spirit of the Lord is going to do it. Which means the Lord's favor is going to lead to life somehow. There's something that Jesus is here to do, and it's going to involve the preaching of good news to the poor. It's going to, uh, and when I say poor, I don't mean money, and neither does it. That's, that's a natural thing. It's those who are poor in spirit, those who have no answer elsewhere, those who are desperate for something. To proclaim liberty to the captives. What are we captive by? It's not just prisoners. It's not just those who are you know, prisoners of war or something like this. What is he talking about? How many of us are actually prisoners without Christ? All of us. We're all slaves to sin without him. And when he's talking about this, there's good news preached to those who are desperate. There's liberty preached to those who are captive. The recovering of sight to the blind. How can we see this? How can we know it? How can we observe it? It's not just that Jesus is here to heal blind people physically. He's here to give us sight so that we can see the gospel. Naturally, we don't see it. We don't want it. We don't desire it. We can't perceive it. We don't know that we don't know we're blind. Right. And so it's why when the light of the world comes in, uh, here we're going to overlap with the sermon again today. What does it say in John chapter 1? Light has broken in and the darkness has not comprehended it. There's something about this light that is able to transform darkness to light. It's not just chasing away the darkness. He's making enemies friends. He's going to do that in a way that God has never worked before. But everything's going to be pictures of it all along. And Jesus is going to fulfill all of them, not just as a lamb to the slaughter, but also as a priest. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That is what Jesus came to do the first time. The second time, he's coming with a sword. And it would do well for the church to remember that when we look at Jesus in the Incarnation, we are not seeing a full picture of what he's going to do. This is why we have books like the book of Revelation to remind us next time he comes with eyes of flaming fire. What is it that the apostles warned us about? When they went out and preached the gospel, how did they do so? They would go out and say, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Why? Because God has set a day on which he will judge the world by righteousness, by that man, Jesus, and he has given confirmation of that by raising him from the dead. That there is something much stronger than death, and though you fear death, there's something much more that you should fear. The one who will raise you up at the last day and cast you into the second death. I think sometimes, now I know sometimes, the way that we preach the gospel makes it sound like Jesus just wants to be your friend and he's begging for you to open the door. That's not how the scriptures portray our Savior. It is not a question of what will you do with Christ. It is far more a question of what will Christ do with you. That's, that's, that's a much more biblical way to talk about that. Do not fear those who can harm the body. Fear him who can destroy both body and soul in the fire of hell. Now, is that a physical thing? Is that a spiritual thing? I don't know anything. 
The descriptions of it are analogous. The descriptions of it are sometimes physical, sometimes spiritual. We just don't know. We do know this. If you want life, there's life in no other name. If you want to serve God, you can't serve him under any other auspice. You can't impress him. There's no other savior, especially not you and me. If our works were to holy us in the face of God, to have God look at us and say, in you I am very well pleased, then we would be God. The reality of our works not saving us is not because our works aren't good, it's because they're not of God. They're just things in the natural world, and things of the natural world cannot save the supernatural. The judgment of God, the wrath of God, fell on Christ at the cross for us. And because of that, we can live. Because of that, we fear no condemnation. And so far from us does that work a, well, great, I get to go out and sin all I want. That's that's not how this works. For those who have truly repented and truly trust in the Lord, they do not want to go out and sin any which way. It doesn't mean that they don't have times of failure. They certainly do. In fact, we are told so much so that if we think we're without sin, we're just showing us to not even know the gospel at all. Sin continually humbles us. Continually humbles us. How many of you, when you see and honestly look at your life and see the sin in it, feel happy about its presence? Yay, I got away with that. No. Nobody ever gets away with anything. You always pay the price. Always. There's always consequences. And salvation does not alleviate natural consequences. Natural consequences just come. But with regards to condemnation before the throne of grace, for those who trust in Christ the consequences were enacted on Christ at the cross. And here the Spirit of God brings life, and we're starting to get rumblings of it, will bring life through death. This has been depicted all through the Old Testament. In order to save some, God kills others. It started at the Garden of Eden, didn't it? Adam and Eve tried to clothe themselves with something that wouldn't kill something. Our sin isn't bad enough to lead to death, is it? We'll just take some leaves off of a tree and cover over our nakedness, cover over our exposure. God says it's not good enough. Something has to die. And he goes out and kills an animal, skins it, and clothes them with skins. Something has to die in your place. That's what your sin just did. And in order to preserve your life, something must die in your place. The same picture goes to Christ on the cross. In order to bring life to us, sinful people, something sinless must die. In order to bring it to more than one of us, it can't be just one of the angels. It can't be just another human or a perfect human. It must be God himself. Elsewise, it does not go out to the world. And God himself must be in the form of man himself, lest it does not apply to him. And so here we have the surprise of all history, God, as man, born as one of us, born under the law, to redeem us out from underneath the law, as Galatians chapter 4 says. And he's going to do this by the, Spirit of the law, uh, the, by the Spirit of the Lord and by no other power. When we see his miracles, that is the Spirit of the Lord working through him. 
Jesus didn't do any miracles before his baptism, not because he wasn't able to, but because he only does these things by the power of the Spirit, and the Spirit didn't come to him until his baptism. By the way, 30 was the year that you became a priest. Um, So there's a lot of parallels there as well. And what you're seeing Christ do is not of his own will. It's of the will of the Father. And so every single time you see every single miracle that Jesus is doing, realize the entire Trinity is at work in every one of them, explicitly. And it's just a fascinating reality of what's going on. We're going to pick up there next week because we ran out of time a little bit, but we also covered a lot of ground, and it is after 10 o'clock. Let's, let's pray, and uh, let's pray and go to the Lord. Our Father, we are grateful. We are grateful for so many of these things. We are grateful for things that we don't even perceive. We know that the life that you are enacting and the salvation that you have worked on our behalf is beyond our perception. But Father, we have seen just a piece of it, and it is mesmerizing to us. We are grateful for it. We pray that you continually drive us to our knees, that you cause us to desire to walk humbly with you in every way, and to be thankful. We pray for this with earnest hearts, and we pray with purified minds in your Son's name. Amen.